Hello, everyone, and welcome to this month's episode of the TMI, also known as the This Month in Entrepreneurship podcast. I am your host, Ashley, and my co-host for today. I'm Alex Hamrick. Before we get started with today's episode, we want to take a minute to acknowledge the fact of the Russian-Ukraine war that's happening right now. This is one of the reasons that this month's podcast is delayed in being released because we didn't feel it was appropriate given everything that our friends and colleagues overseas are dealing with right now to release this as if nothing was happening. So we want to take a moment just to let all of our friends um, that are in Ukraine or refugees of Ukraine or here in the U.S. and are just from Ukraine to know that we're thinking of you, we're praying for you. If there's anything that we or the entrepreneurship division can do for you, please don't hesitate to reach out, even if it's just someone to talk to. There are resources available that you may not know about that we'd be happy to make available for you. And it's the least we could do. For this month's episode, we will be talking about novel data sets and how to create novel data sets. So our guest for today is Diana Hershavaria, who's from the Muma College of Business at the University of South Florida. Diana is an associate professor of entrepreneurship at the Muma College of Business and researches a variety of different topics, such as social entrepreneurship, financing, like venture capital, angel investing. But the call to fame for us on this particular episode with Diana is her involvement with the creation of the Panel Study of Entrepreneurial Dynamics and the Global Entrepreneurship Monitor. In today's episode, Diana walks us through how she got involved with those projects and some advice she has on getting involved yourself in some of these larger scale data sets or creating them. So we welcome her and we thank her for joining us today. So thank you for being here. We start off every episode with an icebreaker question. Season three being about methods. Our question is, when you were a kid, what was your dream job? Wow. What was my dream job as a kid? Well, it's kind of funny. I guess growing up in Florida, you, you're very aware of like the space industry, right? With, um, uh, with it being kind of headquarter, one of the sites being headquartered here. So I wanted to be an astronaut. <laughs> and then I realized that I needed to know how to fly a plane. I needed to know like physics and calculus. And I was like, well, you know, I really hated physics in high school. So this might not be for me. At what point did you decide that uh, astronautics, maybe is that the word, was not the career path? Was it college? Was it high school? Well, it was in high school when we were prepping for uh, college. And uh, I had a class, a computer class that made us um, research the occupational handbook to understand like what careers we were lining up for and what the training was. And when I looked up astronaut and I realized that it was such a competitive um, application process and you needed to go into the military, I was like, well, I'm, to make your odds more um, advanced, I realized like, I don't want to be in the military. And this sounds a lot more than I can chew, but uh, maybe I'll meet some astronaut friends and I'll, uh, I'll be associated with astronauts. <laughs> So, you know, you, you wanted to be an astronaut, obviously now you are a uh, professor at USF. How did you get to this point of your career? What, what was the path it took to get to where you are now? Well, that's, that's kind of a great question. Um, I think one of the reasons I was interested in being an astronaut is because I'm very curious and I like to ask questions. And I mean, the ultimate question is like space, like what, what is it all about? Right. And um, I think it kind of dawned on me. I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to be. And I, I started going to college and I, I went to Miami-Dade Community College first because I'm from Miami and 
it was cheaper and I was trying to save money. And when I transferred to a UF, which is a state school as an undergrad, I just remember walking into my big first lecture hall and I had gone to a small private school where classes were 20 people. And my first class ever was like 1,500 kids in this big auditorium. And I just saw the teacher kind of just control the classroom and, um, you know, teach and lecture. And it was the most enthralling thing for me. And I was like, I want to do that. <laughs> that's what I want to do. So that's how I kind of found myself to this career. And then I found entrepreneurship along the way as I was learning the requirements to be a professor and, you know, what were your expectations and what the career trajectory looked like and what you needed to do to get there. Um, and then entrepreneurship found me, I joke. Why do you say that? What, why did you decide that topic? Well, I was trying to get into a PhD program straight out of my, my undergrad degree, and it was a lot harder than I thought. I happened to be the victim of a, a, an experimental GRE the year I took my GRE. So I, I had like the lowest score. Of, I, you know, when I tell my friends the score I had, everyone laughed. And then a year later, I get a uh, letter in the mail like, sorry, you were an experimental cohort. Here's your score. It's like up by like 800 points. <laughs> I was joking. I was like, oh, I hate this test. So at that point, I had landed in like a, a liberal arts master's. And I figured, let me just buy some time to see what it is, what area I want to study. And I was at Florida International University at the moment. And I had just learned how to computer program while I was um, at UF. I knew how to program in SAS and SPSS because I found, I found that fun. And I ended up getting a RA job and I was working for Paul Reynolds on the panel study of entrepreneurial dynamics. And the rest is history. Um, speaking of the, the panel study of entrepreneurial dynamics, can you tell us a little bit about, or those that don't know what that is and Give us some more details about how you got involved and how you've been using this initiative. Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, it's actually a wonderful uh, publicly available data set. Uh, it was, uh, there's two cohorts of this study and they're random samples of people actively trying to start a business in the United States, right? So what's wonderful about it is that you can actually extrapolate to the US population and say like, hey, in this state or among women or among minorities, that this is what's really going on in terms of business creation. Um, the PSED is hosted by the University of Michigan. They have a website, so you can go ahead and download the data anytime. And um, the stewards of PSED are Paul Reynolds and Richard Curtin. And for those who might not be familiar with Rich's work, Richard Curtin does, um, he runs a survey research center at Michigan, and they, they basically do the Every couple of weeks, well, Bloomberg and Wall Street tracks it. It's like a survey of consumer sentiments. Um, so it's basically kind of saying like how consumers are, um, are feeling about the market, right? So it's a, a really big, important research project that kind of tracks how, how we feel as Americans. Um, but yeah, so PSED uh, was started in 1999 is the first cohort and it tracks respondents over four years. And that's an interesting cohort because right before like the dot com bubble, so you have a lot of uh, you have a lot of uh, internet businesses that go bust if you kind of look at that data, and it, it's interesting because you don't really get nascent entrepreneurs or people who are really early stage starting a business, getting venture capital, and you see that a little bit with very a few cases in that sample. So that's a little interesting. And then the second cohort was uh, screened in two thousand five. And it tracks um, people trying to start a business over six years in that cohort. And what's really cool about this data is that, you know, a lot of the data we have in entrepreneurship, we tend to screen 
and what I call those sexy kinds of businesses, right? The ones going IPO, the ones that get venture capital, the ones that are high growth. These are everyday entrepreneurs, which are like the backbone of the U.S. economy that often get overlooked. And you get to see um, the process of how people end up starting because we track them over time. We know when they started. We know how long they're in the process. We know what they do. Um, we know if it's a husband and wife team. We know if it's a brother and sister. We know if they quit. Is it because they got divorced? Right. So some of those kind of mundane things that you don't really think about. Um, that's involved in everyday entrepreneurship is, is in this data. And it's wonderful because a lot of people don't realize that there tends to be sometimes like this survival bias with the data that we have because we're screening firms that already have succeeded. And here, everybody has a chance to succeed and fail. So you get to get a better idea about what are those antecedents in that pre-startup phase, right? That might influence innovation, that might influence growth, right? So it's really cool data. Well, how do, how do you recommend students get involved with something like this? Like if their university isn't building a big data set, but they've always been interested in collecting novel data, what do you think are first steps for them to take to kind of start doing this? Wow, that's actually a great question. I, I joke that a little bit is serendipity, right? Like luck and serendipity. But I think you create your own luck sometimes, right? And I, looking back now, if I wanted to get involved in large scale data projects or um, research, one of the places I might even look is the NSF, right? Because they have all, they're this kind of clearinghouse for all these major projects and working maybe as an intern for a summer or working with a program director, you get to see what's out there and what people are working on. And you might want to reach out to a PI and say, hey, I really like this project that was interning at the NSF. I saw what you're working on and I'd love to get involved. Um, Another great place to look at is maybe NORC, the National Opinion Research Center uh, in Chicago. They are also a big uh, survey research kind of coordinating site. And again, internships and reaching out to, to people that work in these organizations it would be a great way to kind of see what's available to you because they would know like if people are looking for RAs on a project or if you have skill sets that might align um, with some of the work that they're doing. For PhDs, for example, some programs are not okay with you working outside of the university for another organization besides the university. So they might not be able to work NSF or do an internship. Do you think it would be well received for these students to just reach out to the PI or whoever's responsible for collecting this and say, hey, I'm interested in getting involved? Well, I mean, it depends on the person, right? Um, everybody's a little different and their demeanor is a little different. Um, a great way maybe is to talk to your uh, mentor uh, and see if they know anybody in their network that's looking for somebody who um, might have the skill set you have, or if you just want to learn if, if there's anybody in your university that's working on something um, large scale. And also, it, it never hurts, I would say, it never hurts to submit a grant to the NSF, right? <laughs> the worst you're going to get is no. And if not, you're going to get some feedback because when you start reviewing for NSF, part of the role is to, you know, just like I said, you do a review for a journal, you're giving reviews of these grants, right? So it doesn't hurt to, to, you know, put something out there and see what you get back. And you, you never know, maybe someone that is a program director, because there are opportunities for faculty to roll into like these yearly kind of sabbatical gigs where if you're on sabbatical, you're working at the NSF for a year and then come back. And a lot of times I've seen faculty that have stepped in those roles, reach out to doctoral students who uh, had submitted projects, but maybe weren't quite ready for NSF funding, be connected with uh, PIs that had received funding for mentorship. 
So there's obviously a lot that goes into um, these data sets. And so what, what type of hardships or learning experiences have you had in trying to create and maintain these, um, these data sets like the PSEV? You know, it's interesting because um, I just recently collaborated with some colleagues on a paper in ETP that just came out about reproduction and replication. And I think the biggest thing I've personally experienced is a sloppy uh, data coding or um, syntax coding at the beginning as I was learning. And then I'm trying to go back and do something I did. And I, it's like, I'm throwing my, <laughs> I wanna throw my computer against the wall because I can't figure out how I did something, right? So I've learned to be more um, structured, right? So I'm thinking, you know, just sometimes like as you write a personal note to somebody and you wanna have nice handwriting when they see the note, I'm thinking every time now when I work with these um, different software um, packages that I, I'm writing this code and somebody else is going to read it. So I want to make it as clean and um, legible as possible um, because it makes sure if you do have a mistake, because we're human, there's user error, right? Like you might forget like a comma somewhere or something and all of a sudden, you know, your, your program explodes. <laughs> um, so you, you want to kind of keep as clean of a file as possible. And look at the at the the knowledge I have now. I definitely didn't have when I was a first year PhD student. I remember I would purposely use like the point and click in SPSS when I was learning SPSS, and then print out what I did so I could copy it into another file. And I would start learning like that, right? So kind of taking those steps to see what you need to do to start memorizing, because you you know it's you're learning another language in a sense, right? Um, so you need to do whatever works for you. And I definitely say keep a syntax file of everything you do because there will come a point when you don't remember what you did and you need it to, to make sure um, you know, you're on track with whatever project you're working on. Definitely, that's great advice, thank you. You make a good point here too though, Diana, this episode is about finding novel, creating novel data sets, right? The actual analysis of these types of data sets is different too. Do you think it was more of a learning experience on analyzing this data once you got it or cleaning it up once you got it? Or do you think it was tougher to actually get people to respond to these surveys? There's a lot in this question. I'm gonna start, what was the hardest? The, the PSED wasn't necessarily getting, it was hard to get people to respond because we were working with a, market, a national market research firm to collect the data, right? And then Michigan kind of managed the process and Michigan is exceptional. So if you ever wanna get a project done and you can contract with a university survey research center. And I always say, I used to be a survey researcher when I was in high school, I was like one of my gigs and I feel like I was slowly building up to this job and I never knew it. And I always told myself after me collecting other data, I never want to hire like a non-university research firm or collect my data myself because I feel like it's, there's so many opportunities for things to go wrong there. So I'm of the mindset, like this isn't my expertise. So let's contract of a firm. Here's a survey. You collect the data and then you bring it to me. The next part, I think the hardest part of this whole process is cleaning the data, right? Because that's when you're, you know, doing initial analysis, making sure that, you know, you're trying to find those cases that people were maybe paying attention and, and we're just saying whatever, right? <laughs> so you're really kind of looking with a magnifying glass at every single item and the response patterns at every single item. And then if you're cleaning the data, you're trying to create a document to share the data with other people so you could use it if you're thinking of making it publicly available. And I'm a big person that if you get NSF funding for your project or government money, it should be a public good. So for me, it's really important to find a place to 
archive it publicly like ResearchGate or ICPSR at Michigan, which houses um, data sets for people who have done research. So you can like replicate or reproduce research or extend it. So um, that for me is the hardest part, because like I said, I, I want to make sure people, when they get the data, they're not like, oh, this data is corrupt or there's something wrong with it. So that is the most important part for me and the hardest part. So I take the most time with it. The analyzing part is the fun part for me, right? I can, you know, I could spend hours in front of the computer um, looking at different patterns and um, different relationships among different constructs and variables. So that part only gets hard when you know you have like a time pressure and a deadline and an article and, and something kind of, um, you know, adding additional time pressure. But I, I really think the hardest part is that initial step of getting the data harmonized, put together and um, ready to be disseminated um, for public consumption. So a lot of entrepreneurship research is using these data sets or data sets like it, like GEM. Do you think that entrepreneurship scholars are going to continue to leverage these same uh, data sets or we're going to need to build new ones to address um, in new and novel questions? Um, yeah, no, I, I think you bring up a great point. I think we're going to continue using them, but you're going to see them also get augmented and different iterations of them, right? So one of the issues of PSEE is that it's starting to get a little dated, right? So although there's some aspects of like the firm creation process that might not um, be time sensitive, there are others that might be time sensitive because industries change, society changes, history keeps going, right? So we, we need to kind of um, revisit and recollect um, data so we can explore these phenomena and see how, how time is part of the process because that's one of the most under theorized and under explored aspects of entrepreneurship in my opinion. And so PSED data is the best for it because we're talking them over time, but we need, we need to resample these individuals because what might have been influenced us in 99 or in like 2005 isn't what might be influencing the economy right now. What I, what I do wanna bring out with um, the Global Entrepreneurship Monitor and GEM is that they actually have a, a yearly special theme every year. So like some years they've studied family business, some years they've studied social entrepreneurship. Some years they've studied innovation, um, elder entrepreneurship, or uh, you know, mature entrepreneurship, however you want to call it. So they that what's neat about that is that you can get special topics every year that are uh, advanced by the the different coordinating teams. The only problem there is that it's not time series data, so you can't you can only look at you know this particular theme in this year. Uh, and, and a data set like GEM also needs to be augmented by secondary data, right? In my, in my opinion, to really provide some novel insights about the firm creation process, about established businesses and about business angels. But, you know, there's so many data sets out there now, like, um, what is it? So the pitch book has become like super popular and CB Insights, uh, CompuStat has data too, right? So there's, there's a lot of secondary data and now I think too with um Google data sets you can kind of be able to re research other data that's out there um for entrepreneurship scholars to use there's nothing like collecting your own data right but it's and I mean as a doctoral student it's a lot of money to do so so these um these secondary data sets are really important I think to help maybe tease out some of the questions we may have and prep you for your own data collection initiatives. Yes, there's still room for some of these data sets because I, I know for a fact that there are areas of the PSED that haven't even been explored, like whole sets of variables that no one's ever looked because of the, 
the dynamic and complex nature of what PSED is, right? It's a repeated measure study, um, it's longitudinal, and the kinds of methodological tools that you need to analyze some of this data, people might not have them as readily available in their toolbox, or they might be intimidated um, with putting the data together, right? Uh, so I know there are parts of PSED that have been overused and overlooked at, but there are other parts of PSED that have not been explored at all. Uh, the same thing for GEM. I think what ends up happening is because it's readily available, people just kind of are asking the same questions without really being informed on what the status of the literature is. The utility and the value of GEM or what makes GEM novel is your ability to match it with other data sets. I don't think you can publish a paper in and of itself, just using GEM data. I think it's really important to use other secondary databases like the World Value Survey, um, like the World Bank, um, you know, Transparency International. There are all these other data initiatives that collect country level data uh, that could be added to GEM or even, um, you know, other objective kind of measures from the World Bank or the UN around, you know, foreign direct investment or, or things of that nature. So I, I always say, yes, feel free to use these data sets, but be very cautious that you're not just doing something that's already been done because then people will get really annoyed <laughs> when you get this paper out for review and they're probably gonna reject it if you're working on a, on a project of that nature. So I wanna shift a little bit. When you're developing these big data sets, you talked about earlier about you know getting involved in there's a lot of people that put together these big data sets. So that's a lot of different relationships to manage, especially as a PhD student, junior faculty, where people have been doing this for a very long time. What advice do you have on managing these relationships and making sure that you're offering help without taking up extra time that these folks likely don't have to give to help you figure this out? Yeah. Wow. That's, that's a great question. Um, I think particularly when you're trying to manage these relationships and ask for help, I always, I, I'm one of those individuals that I am not afraid to ask for help, but that's like the last line for me first. If I can't figure it out or I can't go and research the internet, I'm, I'm a big proponent of like searching.edu sites to see like if somebody has a course out there with some syntax or a video that I can watch before I reach out to a colleague for help, um, but I'm not afraid to do so. And when I do reach out for help, I'm very specific and I provide my data and I provide my code. I, I give everything in too much detail probably. So, and then the, the answer generally is like right in front of my face. And I'm like, oh man, I should have realized that, right? But I, I think when you add that level of specificity, people appreciate that, right? Because they know that you value their time and, and you take their, you know, their time seriously, right? So you're not just asking without effort that you've put on and you've reached some roadblock. And I think, I think for mo the most part, I found the colleagues in our division very open and willing to help. Um, on this last project I worked on on ETP, we tried to replicate, we were trying to reproduce like 60 PSED studies. And we only were able to get to like 18 where we got the code and assistance. And one of the things we realized that we need to be better kind of archivists of our own work because people were like, oh, that was six computers ago at like, you know, six universities ago and there was no Dropbox back then and I don't have that, right? So I, I think it's really important to think about how we archive our own work 
and, and showing how we're documenting what we do. So when we do reach out for help, people are open, right? Because we had a lot of people that were very willing and open. And a part of the problem we faced as we were doing this work was they didn't have access to a lot of the stuff they had worked on before because they had moved universities. So it's something to think about just as we move forward as a field, like as doctoral students, as faculty, and even as like editors, right? At these journals, what, what are the expectations for the future, right? Collegiality is important. And um, I think that that's something we all want to aspire to <laughs> as, as members of, of this community, right? So you had mentioned uh, the importance of storing these data sets or keeping them or making them available, I'll say, for other people to use. I know especially some of the premier journals are now asking for to store their data on archive or whatever. And in the hard sciences, they do that with every paper pretty much. Do you think that these data sets need to be stored somewhere publicly so they could be accessed or just have people know who to go to and that person provide them the data set, almost like a gatekeeper? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I'm a big proponent for open science. I think this is the future. It's a movement that is long overdue within our space, I believe, in management and entrepreneurship more readily. And the reason I say this is, you know, with the heightened competitiveness with needing to get tenure and promotion and, and getting a job, a reality is that, you know, harking and p-hacking is becoming a thing. And we wanna be as open as possible to showcase and lead by example as a division to the other management divisions that we're taking this really seriously and we're putting our data out there. Um, I know for one, I was joking with my colleagues after writing this um, replication and reproduction paper in ETP, I was like, you know, I've just made all this extra work for myself because I have to lead by example now. So like every single paper I'm doing and every project, I'm creating the like the code where I'm bringing in all the data sources and you're seeing how I'm downloading all these other data from these data sets to upload them and match them, right? Because I want to make sure that I'm walk, I'm talking the talk and walking the walk, right? So I think it's really important to use these archive sources and it, it makes you stand out a little bit more as a person of integrity, I think, like in our field, if you're taking that extra step to show that you're open to putting your data out there. And I, you know, one of the things too, where people say like, you know, the, the problem with, with your data is that you want to be able to publish a little bit, a couple papers out of it, but just because you put it out there doesn't mean somebody knows exactly what you're doing. I don't think someone's going to be like a fast follower and just do something you did and, and you know, try to steal your thunder. I think it, it shows that somebody wants to replicate your work or reproduce it, that they find it interesting and compelling. So by putting that data out there, uh, it helps, I think, you as a scholar and it helps our division as a whole. So with these big data sets, what is preventing people from going in and, like you mentioned, p-hacking and just trying to find relationships that work and then formulating the research questions afterwards? Are there steps that people should be taking or advice you have to avoid those kind of Well. Speaking from experience, because I've definitely been one of those people that did like the reverse at first, right? And I was like, oh, I found this. And then you're like, how do I explain it? And that's a problem. You, it's hard to explain once you data mine something, right? So I always say start first with a question. And the PSED has a code book. And, you know, download the PDF and control search, right? control find, right? Start looking for words that might be around the construct to see how certain questions might be asked. And then test out those relationships and if it holds and you find your 
hypotheses supported, proceed with the paper. If not, find another question, right? Don't, don't get sucked into the data first. Um, I always say download the data first and just look at the descriptive statistics, maybe some correlation tables, um, maybe some means and, and get an idea for how the data is structured, but then go into the code book and start thinking about the questions you might have around a research topic to see if it fits because maybe it doesn't. And then you might need to collect your own data. Last question for you. Knowing what you know now, given the stage of your career, what's one thing you wish you had known when you had first started your PhD? I wish I would have known and paid more attention to Python <laughs> because I kind of, you know, put all my eggs in like the SAS, SPSS and Stata basket. And now I'm like, man, you know, we're seeing so many more mixed methods research using Python that's so neat and like just fascinates me. I find it so cool. So I've been, I, I, I wish I had more foresight to see how this would permeate into our field and wouldn't be just computer science because I would have probably paid more attention into like my computer science programming classes as an undergrad and maybe taken some more electives to kind of build a stronger base so I could start, you know, using those tools now. So I'm always looking for MOOCs and I'm always on Reddit trying to find like these free Python coding classes, but it's not the same. So that's what I wish I knew. So keep, keep a futuristic eyesight to see what's kind of developing in the computing space because one of the things that happen is when you get to faculty, you forget to keep training. And if you don't kind of do professional development on like the both quantitative and qualitative side for software, you kind of get out of tune a little bit. So you I kind of just be more aware of that, I think. That is perfect advice for a season all about methods. This has been great, Diana. Thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, no. And by the way, if you guys need any help with anything for Academy, you know, like if you guys are doing some doc student stuff, feel free to reach out. Always happy to help. You know, I, I'm a big proponent of paying it forward, right? Like nobody gets to where they are without like, you know, helping others move along. So we want to say a big thanks to Diana for being with us today and all the great advice she offered. And a big thanks to all of you for listening as usual. Please share this podcast with your friends who may like to know some more about methods and creating novel data sets. If you have any questions or advice that you would like to hear about on the podcast, please send your requests to t-m-i-e-n-t-p-o-d at gmail.com. We look forward to reading them, and we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Thank you.